Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Today, I sit down with Luisa Nicola. She's a neurophysiologist and human performance coach. Luisa is the founder and head performance advisor of Neuroathletics, a consulting firm that boosts the best athletes in the world. How does she do this, you're wondering? By using science, of course. She uses data from brain scans, lab tests, and cognitive assessments. Luisa has a first-class ticket inside the brain of elite NBA players, major league baseball stars. She graduated from the University of Sydney Medical School with a Master of Medicine in Neurophysiology, and she is currently completing her PhD on the effects of resistance exercise and the brain. This episode, we got really deep into the best hacks for brain function, which everybody cares about, exercise and cognitive performance, and how one can bulletproof their environment for brain function. If you like this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, it would mean so much to me if you would take a moment, rate it, leave a review. I will be picking one of the five-star reviews to highlight on my social channels. It means so much to people because by doing that, you allow other people to get this information. Let's dive into the show. All right, let's talk about nuts. No, not those kind of nuts. This is House of Macadamias, a sponsor of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast. Not all nuts are created equal. In fact, there's one nut that rules them all, and that's macadamias. Unfortunately, they are super rare. In fact, only 1% of the nuts are macadamias, and that's what typically makes them in high demand and ultimately very expensive. Doesn't always have to be that way, and that's where House of Macadamias come in. I'm going to tell you about that later, but just keep that in the back of your head. Why are we talking about macadamias? Well, they have 30% less carbohydrates than almonds. Macadamias make the perfect snack. So for example, if you have your protein forward breakfast and your protein forward dinner, oftentimes we have to think about what's that meal like in the middle. And the goal of that meal for many people is to eliminate hunger. And one way to do that is to throw in some macadamias, just a very small handful. They are very satiating. They have monounsaturated fat. They have omega-7s. They are amazing when it comes to taste because at the end of the day, if it tastes like chalkboard, nobody is going to eat it. I'm telling you, House of Macadamias have all, they have all kinds of different flavors from white chocolate, strawberry, chocolate, you name it. They're amazing. Head on over to House of Macadamias and you'll get 20% off if you put in the code Dr. Lion. You guys will love these nuts. I am so excited to share with you one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Apollo Neuro. I am obsessed with the Apollo wearable. Here's how I use it. Well, number one, I just got a new Apollo, and that is a white one with rose gold. If you guys are going to buy one tech product this year, this should be it. I use mine for sleep, relaxation. There's a, a program that is very energizing. I am using the Apollo wearable all 
day long. Oftentimes on a podcast or if I'm on IG or something, you'll see it on my wrist. Sometimes it's on my ankle. Why do I use it? I use it because it helps me stay focused, be more present, feel very much in the moment. It was developed by neuroscientists and physicians. Apollo delivers silent, soothing vibrations. So you'll feel these vibrations that affect the nervous system, helps recover, rebalance after stressful situations. I use my Apollo wearable every time I travel. Again, I'm telling you guys, try this out. It's unlike any other wearable that I have ever used. And you can try it too. Go to apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion and you'll get 40% off. That's apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion for 40% off. It is safe. It is natural. It has no side effects and it helps train your nervous system to cope with stress better over time. Louisa Nicola. Correct. Thank you. Well, it's good that I got your name right. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I am thrilled to be able to talk about all things brain health, brain function. And you have a very unique perspective because you combine performance mm. with disease prevention. I mean, your scope of interest and experience is, is really broad. Yeah. So I, I would love for you to share a little bit about your main interests and, and how you got here. Yeah, I've always been obsessed with exercise. I was a triathlete actually. So I raced for Australia. Um, I always say that that was like 40 pounds ago because I definitely am not a triathlete anymore. <laughs> but um, back in my day, that's when I really understood how incredible exercise is, not just for performance, but also for the brain, which is my first love. Um, so I started off actually as a high school teacher. I did exercise physiology and then I moved into a, a master's of pure mathematics. Wow. I know. So really understanding algorithms. And that was my first, I was actually working with medical professionals looking at algorithms of neuronal firing and things like that. Mm -hmm. So became obsessed with the brain during that stage of my life is in my very, very early twenties and then moved into uh, medicine and neurophysiology and just uh, the things that I've seen uh, from a disease prevention perspective is just unbelievable. Uh, my main interests are Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative diseases, not because of anything that's happened in my family, uh, more so because it is devastating that currently worldwide we have 50 million people affected by Alzheimer's disease, and that number is said to triple by the year 2050. And when I see this as an epidemic, a worldwide epidemic to a developed nation, I do believe that it can be prevented. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And when you think about, well, number one, those numbers are staggering. Yeah. 50 million people. And then thinking about how that is going to triple. Mm. This is a disease of epidemic proportion. Absolutely. Brain. But you know what's actually even more devastating and kind of crazy? The, it's going to be the collapse of the healthcare system. It costs the healthcare system in direct cost $305 billion. Alzheimer's disease is costing the US health system $305 billion. I think cancer is only around 70 billion. So what this is unbelievable. So it'll be the collapse of the healthcare system if we don't first understand it. And I always get asked, well, Louisa, why are so many people getting this disease? Is it genetic? Is it? What is it? And why is it preventable? Well, 
first of all, if we have a look at Alzheimer's disease, and you know a, a lot about this, I know that, but we, we first look at the umbrella term, which is dementia. We've got dementia with Lewy bodies, we've got Parkinson's dementia, we've got frontotemporal dementia. Alzheimer's disease sits underneath that, and that's the most uh, widely diagnosed. We know that there's around 30 genes associated with Alzheimer's disease. But did you know that ninety around 97%, and I'll be actually a bit lean so I don't you know, get any <laughs> backlash, let's just say around 90% of all of these cases are preventable. Really, if you have a look, and we know this through uh, GWAS analysis, we know that these, that Alzheimer's disease, the percentage that is driven by genetics is only around three to five percent. Right. So why is the other ninety-seven percent getting it? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I hope you're going to answer for us. Yeah. And one of the things I think it's important to recognize is that those that are genetic, typically it's much early on. It's much earlier. Yeah. You're talking about the age between maybe 30 to 60 at mm. the latest, this early onset dementia, which has a very strong genetic component. But all the rest, there there are behavioral activities that play a role and prevention. So when we're talking about Alzheimer's, can you kind of define that for us as it relates to what are some of the symptoms? Yeah. How slow is the progression? What yeah. does that look like? It's interesting because it actually can start in the 30s, just as you said. And we know that our brain begins to atrophy at the age of 30. So we actually start to get a decline in the amount of neurons in our brain. That's due to A, the natural brain aging process, but B, lifestyle factors, the way we are living and I generally categorize that into three domains, which we'll go into later. But let's just talk about Alzheimer's disease, which is, if you can imagine, cognitive impairment, which starts in your 30s and then over time accumulates and you end up getting diagnosed at around mid-60s to 70s and beyond with Alzheimer's disease, which there's two hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease that's really prevalent. And they are the accumulation of these proteins in the brain, which is tau, which ends up being tau tangles, and then we've got amyloid beta. Here's the thing. these They're acting as the villains. These two proteins act as the villains. We hear about amyloid beta and we think, oh my God, we don't want this, but they, are, they reside in the brain. In fact, there is a difference between the two. We've got first and foremost amyloid, which resides outside of the neuron. And then we've got the tau proteins, which ends up being the tangles, the tau tangles, they actually reside inside the neuron. So let me just do a brief uh, neuroanatomy just for yes, people please, listening. Um, please, and they'll love it. I, I do this as well for a living. I, I teach um, people about the brain, which I love. So your brain is around three pounds and it's like jello. So it's quite malleable. You know, you, you can stick your fingers inside it just like jello. And it's made up of a bit of protein, but it's made up of mainly fat and water. We have cells, just like the cells in our body, we have them in our brain and they're called neurons. The only difference is the neurons in our brain have these long axons that come off them and then these dendrites, like little feet. These dendrites connect with other neurons and that's how we produce our thoughts and our actions through chemical responses. We have around 87 billion neurons in the human brain. With each cell making 15,000 to 30,000 connections. That's wild. 
right? That's why we say that the brain is so energy consuming. It takes around 25% of the total energy expenditure, but of course it does. If you just do the math on that, it's like, I can't do that fast math, like 10 (laughs) to the power of 50 something, but it's just unbelievable the amount of connections that we're seeing. So you think 50,000 to 30,000 connections per neuron, those start to die off. And when we see cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, you'll see a difference between these different dementia states. Alzheimer's disease is you'll see a person start to get short-term memory complaints. Their long-term memory is intact, but they start to forget things such as a person's name, Mm. the street that they live on, uh, the keys, you know, where are my keys? I can't find my keys. Or I had this conversation with so-and-so yesterday, but I'm forgetting the conversation. That's that's generally the, the first symptoms that happen. But let's go back to the brain because I'm getting off topic. Let's just stick to the brain for a moment. So you've got these neurons and and these, we've got our cell body. And then in these axons, right at the end of the axon, we've got these things called microtubules and they're acting as scaffolding for the for the axon. And with these microtubules, you've got around them, wrapped around them, is tau. And what happens is when we have lack of sleep, lack of proper nutrition, uh, a lot of stress, we end up getting the breakdown of this tau. And when the breakdown of this tau occurs, we see the collapse of these microtubules. And this is what ends up forming these tau tangles. So this is happening with inside the neuron. But then you've also got outside of the neuron, you've got this amyloid beta. And this is basically what happens is it blocks the connections between the neurons. So you've got two things happening here and they're both quite scary. Um, But yeah, that's... And every parent is thinking, oh my gosh, that's me. No sleep, can't find keys, can't remember names. Yeah. Um, What can we do about prevention and taking care of our brain in that way? Well, first thing to say is it starts in your 30s. Now, I work with a uh, a specific type of population. And generally, the people I work with are in their 30s. And they say to me, I'm young. And I say, it happens in your 30s. These neurodegenerative disease states it's not a moment in time, which a lot of people think. They think 70 years old, Alzheimer's disease. Actually, it happens around 20 to 30 years prior to diagnosis. So we really need to be on top of these lifestyle factors. There's many. There's around, uh, I would say, around 25 risk factors. Genes, genetics is always going to be one. We know that. Uh, but the three main domains that I think that everyone can be working on, the free things is sleep and then exercise and nutrition. So let's talk about them. Sleep is fundamentally, in my opinion, the most underrated high-performance tool that we have. Okay, you guys you guys heard it here. Yes. I often fight with myself. Uh, I study, which we were talking offline, I'm, I'm currently studying the effects of exercise-induced myokines and how they have an effect on the brain. And I absolutely love that. So I fight with myself thinking, what's more important? Is it exercise? Is it sleep? So I have that constant back and Same. forth. Same. I actually do too. Really? <laughs> I, do. I love that nutrition's yeah. still back here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do too. Yeah. So sleep is incredible and it's free. But as we age, we 
also see a decline in our sleep. It just happens through hormones, especially for women who are perimenopause and postmenopausal women. We see a decline in their sleep performance. But there's around four stages of sleep. So let's let's deconstruct them. You've got stage one, and this is when we're just about to, we're falling asleep. Stage two, we're in light sleep. So the knock of a wall or maybe someone beeping can wake you up. Then we move into the the really important stages. We've got stage three and stage four. Now, stage three is called deep sleep. It's also actually called slow wave sleep because if you'll see, and you know, I've been, um, we had to do sleep medicine and I was in a sleep lab, a PSG, and you see these big, long, huge waves. And that's indicative of slow wave sleep. That's where it gets the name from. And during this stage, your brain actually goes through many different manufacturing processes. The first thing that happens is we get a lot of secretion of hormones during deep sleep. So our body senses, our brain senses, okay, Louise is in deep sleep. I'm going to release hormones. I'm going to release IGF-1 or growth hormone, which is, you would know, responsible for protein synthesis. So we really get regeneration of muscles during that stage. So hugely important for athletes. If they're exercising, if you want to get the effects of a hypertrophy training session, you want to make sure you're sleeping. Recovery isn't taking place during the ice baths. It's taking place during sleep. We get the release of testosterone, estrogen. So these are fundamentally important for human growth, human development. But then we go through a really beautiful process, which was only discovered um, out of Rochester University not too long ago. Uh, We go through a glymphatic clearage process. So just like our body, we have a lymphatic system. So in our body, we have a lymphatic system that clears clears out all the gunk, right? We have that in our brain too. So during deep sleep, our brain goes through this sewage system washout where it cleans out all of the debris. And pathologically, what's happening is, remember how I said we've got neurons? We've got 87 billion neurons. We've got many different types of them. We've got one neuron or brain cell called glial cells. And that comes from the Greek word glue because that's essentially what it's doing. It's sticking between the neurons. And I actually call them nonsense cells. But Do you really? Yeah, I, uh, I hope someone can change my mind. Um, so what happens is they shrink in size during deep sleep. And when they shrink, this allows for the cerebral spinal fluid to go through and wash through our brain and pull apart all the debris and the toxins that build up during the day. One of the toxins that it clears out is amyloid beta which is the one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So this is why sleeping is so fundamentally important for the human brain. However, let's just say we don't sleep too much and we're in a sleep-deprived state, which is actually classified as six hours or less, which is most of New York City, right? Right. You and know, you're not talking about the quality of sleep either. No. So um, if you have a child sleeping in your bed, kicking your back, that even if you're in bed sleeping for six hours – that you might be actually yeah. sleeping for four. And you may be going through polyphasic sleeping. Like last night I was woken up by, you know, I live in Manhattan, so anything's going to wake me up. I was woken up. So that's polyphasic. You know, when you wake up and then you go back to sleep, your brain wants huge cycles. You want to be sleeping like 
in deep sleep and REM sleep for a very long period of time. So yeah, we're talking about six hours or less of sleep deprivation. One night probably won't do anything to you. I'm more interested in compound interest. So if we don't get the clearing out of these toxins for one night, okay. But let's just say you're not sleeping for five nights out of the week for a year and two Mm. years. What happens? Just like compound interest, these toxins, these molecules begin to accumulate and they just accumulate and accumulate and over a 30 year period you go and see you see white matter disease on a you can sure. M- MRI and you see white matter disease and this is w- what then happens to that well we see uh, a decline in cognitive functions mm-hmm. our thinking our processing speed so that's why it's important but let's also go into the next stage of sleep which is REM sleep and it's called rapid eye movement sleep because on an EEG, what you'll see is you're completely paralyzed, but your brain is so active. So you see these horizontal eye movements on an EEG, which is where it got the name rapid eye movement. And we have memory processing and learning that happens during this stage. So extremely important for anybody who wants to hold on to their cognitive functions as they're getting older. So what can we do to address this sleep, which I'm sure that you're going to talk to us about, but can people reverse this? Can they reverse the- Amyloid buildup, tau proteins? Yeah. So that's the controversial point. What you can do is you can, A, you can slow the progression of the onset of these diseases. If you get a mild cognitive impairment patient and you get them sleeping and exercising, you can reverse a lot of the damage. You know, it's exactly the same as the statistic on a heavy smoker. If they cease to stop smoking over a five to seven year period, they go back to baseline, which I think is incredible. You can get the same thing with mild cognitive impairment patients. But by the time that we see brain atrophy, that that's not going to be reversed. It's very hard yeah. to reverse that, extremely hard. You know, I haven't talked so much about that, but that's really where the foundations of muscle-centric medicine came. Yeah. As I was looking at brain imaging, we were doing a study on body composition and brain function at uh, WashU. And one of the participants, amazing woman, she was in her mid-50s and she had atrophy. And was that atrophy, Was that? did you see this in white matter disease or in the, the gray matter cortex? Uh, we saw it in both. Yeah, because I've actually seen um, at the same as you and at MRI, I was comparing like an 80-year-old. And what you see is you've got, evidently you've got your skull and you mm-hmm. you have this huge space between the base of the skull and the gray matter. So you see thinning of the gray yeah. matter cortex, which when I saw that, I, that was scary enough. So you had the same, it had the same impact on Mm. you. Yeah. But uh, I realized that we had been constantly focusing on adiposity and obviously her metabolism was, was all out of whack and she had three kids. I wish that I had really, you know, at the time uh, we weren't really focused on lifestyle interventions other than exercise and diet. I wish that I had talked to her about her sleep patterns. Yeah. Sleep. But here's the thing, right? Yes. What, what can we do to improve the quality of our sleep? Because that starts, if you've got, I would rather you sleep six hours of pure quality sleep than sleep eight hours of mediocre waking up and going back to sleep. Hmm. It's just, if I would rather you get into these deep sleep and REM sleep stages. Another thing is timing. 
you can't go to sleep at, let's just say, 1am and wake up at 9am and say, oh, I got eight hours of sleep and it's just not the same. Hmm. We know that you're going to have a much more better sleep if you're sleeping at 10 p.m., which at neuroathletics lights out is 10 p.m. I think only like 5% of my uh, clients adopt this method. What about you? Are you very strict? Um, I am so strict. I don't even, it's funny, very different person to what I was in my 20s. I don't even go out for dinner now unless it's like, is it a 6 p.m. seating? 7 p.m. seating, which makes it hard for me to have friends. I'm changing all my reservations. Yeah, reservations are changed. <laughs> I'm like one of the uh, a senior citizen now. But it's, it's that important. Well, to, yeah, for me it is because I have a very cerebral lifestyle. I need. I'm. I'm reading study after study daily. I've. I've got a huge workload, so I need to make sure that I'm performing at my peak as well. So how do you do that? So sleep. What are some of the things that I do? for sleep we everybody here wants to hear yes including myself we know first and foremost that light attenuates sleep on all levels so i modify my lights actually if you come to my apartment i don't have overhead lighting i have my lights are actually on the floor and that's because we're going to get a bit detailed now. I love that. I I just am thinking about, you know, again, we were chatting before about how I'm moving to Houston. I got to change all this. Yeah, you've got to have, um, don't get overhead lighting. Okay. And that's because, A, let's first, we know that light is going to be bad for our sleep. And that's because we have a hormone that is secreted and it's secreted from the pineal gland. And it's the hormone responsible for making us feel sleepy and keeping us asleep it's called melatonin so it gets it gets released in response to darkness so if we have overhead lighting we have a lot of light in our apartment it's your pineal gland's going to say well i'm not going to secrete any of this because it's daytime so before we had light and what was happening was the sun would go down and our brain would just naturally start secreting it because we wouldn't have light so they'd run into their cave the cavemen and that's how they'd get their their melatonin secreted so if we know this, then what what do we have to do? Well, we have to a- either dim the lights as much as possible. And I'm sorry to say for everybody buying those block out blue light blocking Please glasses. Please tell me they work. They work, don't they? Unfortunately, no. It's because your retina. Let's let's okay. Your retina. Let's just imagine a a, a a circle. You've got on the bottom half. Okay, on the this let's say mm-hmm. at 180 degrees on the bottom half of your retina are these specialized cells retinal ganglion cells and they are the cells that actually sense the light and it's actually really beautiful because it's like in line with mother nature because you walk outside and your eyelid covers half of your eye right but the sun is shining down at an angle that projects into the bottom half of your retina. These cells then shoot to a specific area of your brain, which cell which tells the brain, hey guys, we're awake. Let's release, get the cortisol engines running, block the melatonin. She's awake. She's ready to go. So that's why sunlight's really good in the morning to wake up your entire system. So if you have overhead lighting in your apartment, you are doing the same thing. And the reason why these these glasses don't work is because your eyes become more sensitive throughout the day because we've been up all day so they become a bit weaker and more sensitive mm. therefore any type of light that comes in is going to be waking them up waking you up so dim the lights if you want to wear the blue light blocking glasses it 
try but, it. But you're but saying that it probably it doesn't. Probably does. No, it, it, you're no, you're better off just dimming the lights completely and then blacking out all light that comes into your bedroom with uh, blackout curtains. What about changing the light bulbs to a different um, yeah, spectrum? I do that. I've got um, I've got red lights actually. <laughs> so does that help? It, it helps. Yeah, and it's also more soothing, and so that helps. But I've, I'm, it's very dim in my apartment from 8 p.m. onwards. You can actually get automatic timers as well. And then are you able to be on your computer at that time? Uh, no, I, I don't. But I do watch to calm myself down every now and maybe watch a, an episode of Friends or something. So, And then I'm in bed and I'm wearing an eye mask. I'm like religious on my eye mask. Wearing an eye mask, I have blackout curtains. So the room is pitch black. And I'm fortunate that I don't get up and go to the bathroom. I know a lot of people have that problem, especially as you get older. Men in their Mm -hmm. 70s are waking up at around 4am going to the bathroom and then they're switching the lights on and that's it. You've just, you've ruined everything. Okay. Yeah. So if you do feel the need to go to the bathroom, I would have a lower lamp set in the bathroom. And how important is Bedtime at the same time and wake time. Consistency is probably one of the most important things when it comes to sleep fitness. And sleep fitness, I was going to ask you, can you train yourself to get into deep sleep? So things that kick you out of REM sleep and deep sleep, let's talk about them. Alcohol. I put out a statement on Instagram that kind of went viral. People didn't like it. And I said that no amount of alcohol is good for the brain. I would totally agree with you. Yeah, people don't like to hear that. They also don't like to hear another tweet of mine that went viral was, I don't know who needs to hear this, but THC is not helping you sleep. Another thing that people don't like to hear, and it's just true, it's not my opinion. So alcohol is a sedative. And you would know when you go into surgery, you're getting pumped full of propofol to sedate you. I'm not saying that that's what alcohol is doing. However, ethanol is a sedative. So if you feel like alcohol is making you sleepy, you're actually just depressing some of the excitatory you know, neurotransmitters that are happening in your brain. You're inhibiting them. So it's making you feel, you know, it's lowering your inhibitions. It's making you feel drowsy. It's actually blocking REM sleep, deep sleep, and you're just knocking yourself out during the night. So that's going to kick you out of deep sleep. It's going to kick you out of REM sleep. Stress, the activation of our sympathetic nervous system is going to either not allow you to fall asleep, which is called sleep latency, but it's going to also wake you up. One of the biggest things for insomnia patients and them waking up throughout the night is the activation of their sympathetic nervous system because they're just so stressed. Mental stress? Mental stress. stress. I've got this going on. And this is why we actually, as we age, we get a decline in our sleep states because we've got much more going on. We've got kids. We've got mortgages. The stress of just being in 2023. like So managing stress is a huge thing Mm -hmm. for sleep performance. Something that I've been toying with lately is temperature control. Special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. Head on over to firstform.com. That's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash Dr. Lion. And because Louisa kept talking about sleep and how important that is, 
one way that we get into sleep is not just also controlling our environment, but considering an additional support. And one of those things that I recommend and I use myself is called Core 21, and it's a nighttime cortisol reducer. It has a little bit of vitamin C, it has kava in it, it has ashwagandha, rhodiola, all kinds of herbs and some enzymes to really help me relax. If you are having trouble sleeping, then making sure that you are in an environment where you can get good sleep, it's cool, there's not a lot of noisy sound, and of course not drinking alcohol before bed, but utilizing or potentially utilizing something that can help be very supportive and help get you into deep sleep, calm your mind, calm your body. And one way to do that is Core 21 head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and try yours today. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. Especially when we think about sleep, oftentimes when we skip sleep, it does show up in our blood work, whether it's cortisol or hormones or other inflammatory markers can totally be off. This is why it's critical to look inside Hence, which is, I bet, where Inside Tracker got their name. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get 20% off. This is blood work, markers, DNA, fitness tracking data, you name it. They look at everything and it allows you to see where you can improve. Again, why is that important? Because if you don't know where you can improve, then you continue to do the same things over and over again. And I will tell you, as a practicing clinician, one of the biggest ways to move the needle for people is if you actually show it to them. And that's one reason why going to insidetracker.com slash line and getting 20% off your blood markers, your DNA, all the things will show you and really move the needle because you'll be forced to take action. For a limited time only, get 20 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to inside, like inside your body, tracker.com slash Dr. Line for 20% off. Okay. Yeah, I sleep on a temperature controlled mattress, which um, is so bougie of me. Which, which one do you use? I use Eight Sleep. Same. And, and this is because we now know that in order to fall asleep and stay asleep, our core body temperature needs to drop at least two degrees. So, I have it manipulated throughout the night at a minus two. So it my core body temperature drops when I'm in deep sleep and drops again in REM sleep. And then I have the alarm set for six. So it, it heats up because for us to wake up, we actually get a rise in our core body temperature. And that's what wakes us up. So they're probably the best things that you could do. Now, whenever I see somebody the two biggest complaints they have is I've either got trouble falling asleep or trouble staying asleep. So if anybody wants to experiment um, with the sleep latency, so if you want to be able to fall asleep faster, you may want to work on things that are going to decrease the mental activity in your brain. You could uh, supplement with GABA, gamma and amino butyric acid. Mm -hmm. It's our chief inhibitory neurotransmitter. You could do maybe a warm bath to calm you down. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, do you ever use, so if someone is having trouble falling asleep, you'll recommend GABA or something similar. What about staying asleep? Staying asleep is twofold. First of all, temperature. If you're hot, you'll wake up. It's 
running out of melatonin, and this is why I'm really against exogenous use of melatonin, A, because we know that supplement, the supplement industry is not regulated. So they there was a study that was done on melatonin bottles and they found that the bottles actually contain 100 times more than what mm. is said on the front. So if you think that you're having two and a half milligrams, you may be having, you know, 100 Which, by the way, X. is a lot, actually. Oh, yeah. And yeah. um, just to let everyone, you are actually pumping. It's a hormone. Right. Well, I can't go and get estrogen over the counter. Right. That would be a bad idea. That would <laughs> You would know. It would it probably be. A, you can't just go and get. Well, I, I think you don't want to go and just pump yourself with a, a testosterone tablet. It's a set. It's. We're, we're taking the issue too lightly. It is a hormone. And if you pump your body with it ex- exogenously, your pineal gland is going to be like, well, Okay. I don't need to produce anything. I'll just sit back and then you get disrupted sleep. So stay away from that. And then what about nutrients for the brain? I know that that was another one of your pillars. So we have sleep, exercise, and nutrients. Big fan of creatine. Creatine's involved in energy cell production. Uh, It decreases, I believe, which you probably have more to say on this, as we age. We We used to think that creatine was just there for the body to get big and right. buff. The bodybuilders made it famous. Uh, Thank now, you guys, by yeah, the way. <laughs> it's um, an amazing supplement, uh, but we all also now know that it's incredibly important for the brain. In fact, my father had a um, had a right parietal lobe stroke back in 2019. So you can imagine there's hypoxia happening there. We Certainly. I've got him supplementing with five grams a day. And he's great. He's you know you know two three years on now, but he's he's going to the gym. He's noticed. He doesn't know what he's taking at first. He's like, she's giving me drugs. <laughs> and you're like, just go with it. Just go with go it. with it, Dad. Extremely, um, you know, it's it's cost effective and yeah. very very safe. Creatine monohydrate. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Omega three fatty acids. Yes. I think I will go to my grave <laughs> telling people to take this. Uh, Dosage wise, the most. Uh, Widely studied dosage is four grams a day. So four grams of EPA, four grams of DHA. So omega-3 is made, omega-3 fatty acids from fatty fish, mackerel, salmon. It's made up of EPA, DHA, and ALA. And these EPA and DHA, the DHA seems to be much more important for the brain and the EPA is uh, you, where you get your cardiovascular benefits from. But we even have studies now, human studies that show that four grams a day of each, which is 2,000 milligrams, can have an effect on mild cognitive impairment patients and Alzheimer's disease patients by going in and ameliorating these amyloid beta proteins. Mm, that's really interesting. And I think that the evidence is definitely in favor of fish oil and that kind of supplementation. And it's been around for so long. Been around for so long, yeah. What about um, ketones? Yeah, I'm, I I love ketones. Um, we know it's a preferred fuel of the brain when in a glucose-deprived state. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't know why there's this misalignment now with ketones versus glucose your brain uses glucose for energy right okay but people yeah, yeah, want yeah. to fight and say that no it's ketones but the ketones are there uh when the right when we've got no glucose so i just wanted to make that clear and it's great it immediately crosses the blood brain barrier and for me and my clients what we've seen is not just an uh, not just an ability to keep enduring for longer but we see an appetite suppressant 
involved mm. in that. So I'm having exogenous ketones as well. So you are interesting. And the last supplement I'll ask you about, unless you want to share other ones, because I think there's so many interesting ones, like methylene blue. Have you, you know, there's just. Yeah, there's, it's too. It's early, too early. Yeah. I'm okay. not going to say gimmicky, but right now I think that needs to be monitored by yeah. a very well-known, a well-known, uh, a physician who knows what they're doing in that area. I'm seeing people just chewing on it. <laughs> You know, and it's, it's, yeah, it's not there yet for me. Okay. Uh, but other things that are great for even sleep is um, magnesium L3 and 8. Yep. It can penetrate the central nervous system. And whenever I have L3 and 8, I'm having a really deep sleep. That's, that is important. Um, and I'm sure everybody is going to try that because probably the majority of people are not getting into deep sleep. Correct. Majority. And, you know, we've got, so I wear, wearable data. Now, coming from a sleep lab, you can't say that anything outside of a sleep lab is 100% effective. So I'm cautious on wearable data, but I use it and I get my athletes to use it. So we can say, I I say around 80% accurate. So if we're looking at wearable data, we can look at deep sleep patterns. Mm. So what I would suggest to anybody who's tracking their sleep is just look for patterns. If you had three hours of deep sleep one night, which by the way, you should look for around 20 to 25% of total sleep time to be in REM sleep. Most of it to be in in deep sleep if you can. But if you had a really good deep sleep score, study yourself. What what did I do well that night? What didn't I do well? More often than not, the first place to start is total sleep time. Okay. What about the impact of food and exercise timing around sleep? Yeah. So With that, exercise is best done in the morning. And that's because we know that you're going to get a robust release of cortisol, our stress hormone. It takes a while to come back down to baseline and even drop in order to fall asleep. So you want to be able to keep that away from sleep as much as possible. So I always tell people morning is best. If you can't do that, then try the furthest away from sleep. Don't try going to the gym at 8 p.m. Right, because sleep is more important. <laughs> so you know, physics, I can't. I fight with myself it's, because then I'll yeah. tell my professor, like I'll find something out. You know, with myokines, I'll be like, oh no, this is it. <laughs> we should talk about myokines. I know one of your big goals is to discover a new myokine that's going to help with neurodegeneration. Yes, and there's so many, and you know, arguably we're in its the infancy yeah. of understanding all of them, what they do. Six hundred and ten right now that yeah. we know of. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be a Louisa myokine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. I think that would be amazing. Tell yeah. me a little bit about the research that you're doing now. So myokines are muscle-based proteins. You've spoken about them. And this I'm is obsessed where, with them. Yeah, yeah, this is where, yeah, you and I can really like collide <laughs> together in this because we used to think that exercise, you know, we used to think, well, why am I feeling good? What is the what is the effect? We have this, it's actually a muscle brain crosstalk or muscle organ crosstalk. And that is due to myokine release. So myokines are muscle-based proteins. They're produced within the skeletal muscle. And when the skeletal muscle is contracting in an either an eccentric or a concentric phase, you can get a release of these amazing molecules that 
I always say that your muscles are like a pharmacy for your brain. These molecules, when they're released, they go into the bloodstream, into the circulation, and they go to different areas of the body. We have receptors on our organs. We have receptors on our heart, on our liver, our spleen, and in our brain. And when they're released from the muscle, they go into the bloodstream, they go up to the brain, they cross the blood-brain barrier, which is, you know, people think there's a, you know, I call it the bouncer to the club, you know, uh, but what happens is you've got uh, on the epithelial cells on the outside, you've got this blood-brain barrier and it's they're bound together by tight junctions, these cells, and they don't allow for the passive diffusion of certain molecules to enter. So they, they're like these little bounces that say you can't get in, but certain things can cross the blood-brain barrier and these myokines can. And when they go in, oh, my God, they have enormous effects on the brain. Mm. Yeah, there you go. No, I, I was curious as to what do you think the benefit is going to be for exercise, neurodegeneration, doesn't matter the kind of disease process that we're looking at, the kind of exercise yeah. for brain protection. So one of the first things to go during neurodegeneration, especially Alzheimer's disease, is first of all, you've got the breakdown of the hippocampus. Okay, the neurons within the hippocampus, which you start to lose memory function. So the hippocampus is this seahorse structure deep within the temporal lobes. So let's just leave that there and let's just focus on the frontal lobe. Okay, so if everybody's listening or if you're watching on YouTube, just get your right hand and you can do this as well and put it up against your forehead. Right there lives your frontal lobe. It's about the area, the size of your palm. And that's probably the the most, when I say the biggest, I mean that houses the most amount of neurons in the brain. And our focus center is in there and that goes as well as we age. So we've got the breakdown of our focus regions in the frontal lobe. Then we've got the breakdown of the hippocampus. Now what happens is when we do muscle contractions through exercise, so let's just say we're exercising, we're doing resistance training our skeletal muscle releases something called irisin, which is actually named after the Greek god of Iris because Iris was a messenger to the god. And that's what this irisin does. It acts as a messenger. So it gets released and it goes through and it'll go into the dentate, nu uh, the dentate gyrus within the hippocampus. So you imagine the hippocampus is like a seahorse and the head of the hippocampus is where it's having an effect. And it goes in and it can actually help with the proliferation of new neurons. So we can get neurogenesis, the creation of new neurons within the hippocampus. So that's how it has an effect on neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. We've also got cathepsin B. We've got IL-6. IL-6 is, you the know- The most famous myokine. It's the most famous time. myokine. It was the first discovered as a myokine because as you would know, it's actually a cytokine. Mm -hmm. But depending on where it's released, it becomes a myokine, it becomes a pro. So it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable that these, not a pro-inflammatory cytokine, it becomes an anti-inflammatory cytokine. So it has an effect on immune function. It has an effect on cognitive functions. Something that I've just, I've just been reading this new research on prostate cancer. Mm. And there are myokines that I'm still learning about that are have anti-cancer effects. Irisin is one of them. Um, 
But then they've got we've got one called oncostatin, which gets released and it has an effect on breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and it has an effect on decreasing tumor size. So I it astounds me that exercise is not a prescription drug when you go to your doctor. This is where I actually have a problem in terms of public health and public policy. I think we're going wrong in the language. So when we hear about uh, the effects of exercise on brain health and longevity, people and many physicians um, and in academic research is referring to it as physical activity. And we need to change the language around that Mm -hmm. because physical activity is literally doing anything where you are not sedentary. Walking to your fridge is physical activity. As my mother says, Louise, I'm doing so much exercise <laughs> when she's describing gardening. And gardening is great, okay, that type, but that's physical activity. We're talking about to get these effects, longevity effects, neurodegenerative effects, we want you to be exercising. That involves getting the heart rate up. And when you have a look at the studies of these myokines, irisin, when it comes to resistance training in irisin, you need to be working at around a 65% of your one repetition max. When we look at myostatin, you need to be working at an 80% of your one repetition max. So either way, whether it's 70%, whether it's 80% of one MR, you need to be working hard. So going to the gym, lifting weights, ladies, don't be afraid of weights. Stop thinking that you're going to get big. It's, it takes it takes so much. I'm still trying to get, to get big. I mean, <laughs> you, yeah. yeah, it's it takes so much protein yeah. to get that big, but it takes so much time in the gym. And the effort matters. Oh, the effort matters. And it's a long process. You don't just go and lift heavy and you get big. So stop being afraid of that. Stop lifting these tiny little weights that does my head in. When I say tiny weights, you know, it's interesting because what you're not, what we're talking about is not hypertrophy, strength, or power. We're actually talking about effortful training from the perspective of muscle as medicine. Yes. And that's what's so interesting. We're not talking about, again, these performance metrics. We're leveraging this concept of a one rep max or 70 to 80%, but we're utilizing it for the intention of a dose response. Yes. And that's what I think is so critical about what you're saying. I would rather people go to the gym for brain health, not just to look good. And if we change the language, if we change the language around why do you go to the gym? If you go just to look good, that puts in, especially I'm talking from a female perspective, that puts a lot of stress on a woman, especially as she ages. I would know. I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm Greek. I'm never going to be tiny unless I really work hard for it. And you'll probably never have a wrinkle either. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but what happens is if I go to the gym for my brain and if I go to the gym for the anti-cancer effects that's going to happen, I'm going to stick to it much better. You know, efficacy, getting a patient or a client to stick to a routine is hard enough. And so getting them there not just to look good, but to know that at the age of 80 and 90, you're going to have the conversation with your grandchildren. You're going to be able to get yourself up off the chair. You're going to stop yourself from having a hip fracture or a hip break. Right. That's, and those things kill you quickly. Oh, yeah. As opposed to 
typically cancer or some diagnosis that that potentially takes time. Yeah. And not to mention the antidepressant effects that these myokines have. Mm. Again, 610 known myokines. There will be more because as our muscle grows, we can, you know, we induce mitochondrial biogenesis. We're going to have more muscle, therefore more proliferation of these myokines. I think that that's really critical. And the mission is very noble to be able to change that conversation and critical. Yeah, critical. Um, is, is really critical. What are some of the things that we are doing that we don't know that are really negatively affecting our brain? And in my mind, I'm thinking, is it scrolling on the phone? Is it interfacing within our environment? I'm sure um, tobacco use is not good. Are there unknown things that perhaps people are doing on the regular? Yeah. So let's look at this from a vascular perspective. Your brain is the most vascular-rich organ in the entire body. That means that it houses the most amount of arteries, capillaries, capillaries in the US, uh, veins. What does this mean? Well, if that means that if you were to pull apart all of the vasculature in the brain, it actually, because somebody did this, like did a study on this, it actually spans 400 miles. That's how rich this is. And some of these capillaries are one cell thick. They're like the, the width of your hair, a piece of a hairline thick. We have two main arteries that shoot up to the brain. They that come from your heart. You've got the vertebral arteries and the carotid arteries, and they shoot up. And we see branching of the arteries after that. They go into the brain. These capillaries that are one cell thick are affected. This is the number one thing that affects them: hypertension. But not just that. Not just. Uh, not just elevated blood pressure, it is the rise and fall. You don't want that. You don't want to have these massive spikes in blood pressure then come back down because you can go and then kill off these tiny little capillaries. What are the capillaries, what are the arteries doing? Well, they're delivering blood to the brain, but they're also delivering oxygen and nutrients. So if you start to kill off these tiny little blood vessels that's delivering blood, oxygen, nutrients, you're not going to get that. Mm. We don't want hypoxia. We don't want to right. be in a low oxygen. So your brain needs oxygen for everything. We know that. So managing blood pressure, I think, is the most underrated thing that we're talking. We're not talking about it. And yeah. Just to just, I'm going to keep going with this. Uh, and I use my father, the poor guy, with everything that I speak about because he's, you know, he's my best client. Oh. And um, I have him, I have my mother measuring his blood first thing when he wakes up, measuring his blood, blood pressure. pressure the moment he wakes up, which is the most, you know, we want to be able to get that measurement. And then when he goes to sleep, and there's a, we have a chart, and the chart is shared with me. They live in Australia, so the chart is shared with me. And I plot it on a graph and I, I look over time to see what is the blood pressure in 2021, 22, 23. So maintaining, you know, good blood pressure, low blood yeah. pressure is, is important. You know, we saw that um, when I was doing my work as a geriatrician vascular dementia was Oof. a major, major issue. Yeah. And one of the things that we always saw that individuals struggled with first was executive function. Yeah. Uh, before short-term memory, lo memory loss yeah. for uh, vascular dementia. And that's because, like I mentioned earlier, we have the, the frontal lobe 
The frontal lobe houses your prefrontal cortex. We call it the CEO of the brain. And this is where our cognitive functions live. Reaction time, processing speed, focus, attention, decision-making, they lie there. So if you think the most amount of neurons, it means there's a lot of vasculature that is shooting out into the frontal lobe. So it's no wonder that you start with these declining cognitive functions. And in fact, there's a wonderful paper uh, that was written that shows the many theories to the brain aging process. And one of them is dysregulation of dopamine receptors in the frontal lobe. So we also get a decline in the frontal lobe's ability to release dopamine. And that's just due to how we age. Gosh. So there's, it just, it's very multifactorial. Multifactorial. Uh, and I said something on a podcast that um, ended up hitting around 10 million views. It was very simple. And it's, it's in the scientific literature on human research to show that 85% of brain gray matter is modifiable by exercise. So our gray matter, just for everybody listening, we've got gray matter, we've got white matter. The gray matter is the cell body. Remember how I said we've got a cell, then we've got the axon. Now the axon that is coded in these layers called the myelin sheath, and they're the fatty layers, and they coat the axon. That's the white matter. And they are responsible for processing speed. In fact, as a neurophysiologist, we do things such as an EMG, electromyography, we do nerve conduction studies. So we're generally looking at the multiple sclerosis patients. Mm. And that's scary because what we pick up on is slow conduction speed or slow conduction velocity. And we can pick up on these demyelinating disorders, ALS, we can pick up on. And so that's where I was doing the bulk of my um, training and that is due to the white matter either thinning away, okay, so you get a slowing of conduction velocity, or you get complete conduction block, which is you've got – so just to, um, just to put into perspective, the myelin sheath isn't a big layer of myelin sheath. It's like clumped together. There's myelin sheath, then there's a little space, and there's myelin sheath, and then there's space, and the space between them is called the nodes of Ranvier. But what happens if, just say you get rid of one clump of myelin sheath, we have something called complete conduction block. So therefore, the speed of transmission, again, a along that axon is not going to happen. It's not going to occur. It's just going to block. And that shows up as not be speed of thought. You know, when you're talking and then you just, you're talking and then out of nowhere, you just, you stop. And things you're just like, oh, what was I saying? So that's where we see we we see white matter disease. Mm, really, really important. What do you think is on the horizon? Okay, first of what I would love to be discovered. I hope someone's working on this. Um, do you wear a CGM? Not anymore. No, not anymore. Yeah, I used to wear one too, but I got my data. I know what affects me. Love CGMs. I think they're incredible. How amazing would it be to have one for blood pressure? Mm. I think that that's on the horizon when we come to technology. And then I'm just really excited about discovering how exercise can decrease or slow the onset of neurodegenerative diseases. I just want to also say, back to Alzheimer's disease, 
back to this. The biggest genes that we speak about is ApoE4, AUE4, E4 positive. We know that just having one gene, the um, ApoE4 gene, can increase your risk. Mm-hmm. I think it's by four times as much. And then if you've got two genes, we get one from mum, one from dad. Uh, if we have two of the E4 genes, it's going to increase our risk. I, I'm not sure the percentage. Let's say seven, seven times as much, maybe even more. It's not a death sentence. If you have E4, E4, if you have any of the genes, it is not a death sentence as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. There are genes responsible for, if you've got it, like um, chromosome 4, Huntington's disease, you will get Huntington's Huntington's disease. We know that. But these E4, E4, we know that they are triggered. And I, I hate to use this analogy but it's the way I was describing it to my parents and it was the analogy of a gun. Let's just say you've got the gun, that's your brain and you've got two bullets in there and that's your E4, E4. If you just leave it there, okay, it's not going to pull the trigger. But if you want to bring it up and pull the trigger and shoot it, the things that's going to pull the trigger is lack of physical activity, stress, exercise, poor nutrition. That's what pulls the trigger. We know this to be true because they did a study on E4, E4 participants in Nigeria. They don't get Alzheimer's disease. Why? Because they're not pulling the trigger because they are, you see their lifestyle, they're walking, they're hunting, they're not in Mm -hmm. front of a computer all day, they're not stressed out and they eat food from the ground, they eat whole foods and they eat a lot of protein, (laughs) a um, a lot of meat. So we know then, if you've got E4, E4, Chris Hemsworth is now on a specialized program. He's actually stopped going. I think he's taking a break from acting to because he's got E4, E4 positive. Doesn't mean it's a death sentence. Doesn't mean you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. You determine whether you get Alzheimer's disease. And that's the issue with public policy. We've got so many people out there petrified of getting this disease and just thinking that Yes, I'm going to get it when I turn 70, but that is wrong. I think that that is incredible to point out, and it's so true. One of the other things that we always have to think about is metabolic regulation, body weight. Diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, huge. Um, And this plays into uh, strokes. Strokes are, you don't just get it because you're, you can, if we know that the biggest risk factor for a stroke is, um, is, high, is blood pressure, managing blood pressure, then get your weight under control. Mm-hmm. Get what you're doing under control. You have the power to do so. And I keep every night I go to sleep thinking, why do people still not know? And it's got to come down to education. Um, I was, like I said, I was an educator myself. Uh, we have something called pedagogy, which is the art and science of teaching. So you learn how to get a message out there. So I think what you're doing is monumental. You've got a wonderful platform here. You've got an incredible Instagram account. You are putting education out there. So we've got free education mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah. Um, Louisa, thank you so much for coming on. It just is eye-opening and I am going to have to really get better sleep. And I think everybody here is going to really begin to prioritize sleep, exercise, and nutrition if they're not even more inspired to do so. Because brain function, ultimately without your brain, 
you can live with a lot of a lot of other things, but you can't live without that. So Correct. thank you so much. I will include where to find you. Are you working on any new projects? Yes. Um, the Neuro Athletics Coaching Certificate is going um, is going public on the 1st and 2nd of April. So this is where uh, mainly coaches of high-performance athletes can come and learn about how they can train the brain of their athletes so their athletes can perform better, think faster, and live longer. I love that. I love that. We will definitely share it. And thank you so much. Thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.